This is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, broadcasting for the very first time from our brand new radio studio at GPB. I want to send out a thanks to Adam Woodleaf, Tom Barkley, Ellen Reinhardt, and all the people working very hard on what became a two-year project. And today we're starting off with a couple of people also working hard, but they're working to expand the influence of a constituency in American politics, black conservatives. The overwhelming majority of African-American voters in Georgia and the rest of the U.S. are Democrats. About 94 percent of African-Americans voted for Stacey Abrams in the last gubernatorial election. That is according to exit polls. It is a powerful, dependable voting bloc on the left that has so far drowned out black conservatives, a slim minority among minority voters. The Pew Research Center says only about 8 percent of black voters identify as Republicans. So ahead of President Trump's visit to Georgia on Friday, we're getting a glimpse of issues that concern them. Karen Walker is founder of Black Conservatives for Truth. Karen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Leo Smith is founder and president of Engage Futures Group and former member of the Georgia GOP Ruling State Committee. Thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be here. Well, I want to get a little bit of a sense of the both of you first. But so, Karen, let's start with you. You did not grow up in a Republican family. Did I have that right? Correct. So how would you describe them as voters, your family? We were a Democrat voting family, but we were pretty much conservative. Mm -hmm. So that was um, the way that I was raised. Um, once I became an adult, I started to pay more attention into politics. I realized the way I voted did not match my policy beliefs or my values. So I switched. So you switched. And how about for you, Leah? What were your family politics growing up? Well, my family politics were survival. I mean, we were uh, descendants of American slavery and we were sharecropping and trying to figure out how to live in a single parent household on land that we weren't sure was ours. And so uh, understanding those things as a little boy growing up, a Boy Scout with conservative values and AME church going, uh, Sunday school going boy and Bible uh, school going boy, um, the values that I had were conservative from the beginning and learning how to farm and future farmers of America and that kind of thing just made me identify more with conservative ideology. I see. And you were also a minister with the AME Church. That's I correct. Understand. I was at Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. So white evangelicals and other socially conservative Christians are part of President Trump and the Republican Party base, certainly. But you don't hear the same necessarily from predominantly black churches. What role does faith play in your political views? Well, we're seeing that with the support of evangelicals with Donald Trump right now. I mean, one of those large things being uh, support for life uh, being very, very important. And that's very confusing to a lot of people when they see this support because it's almost like a Polinian, the, the story of Paul in the Bible. You know, he's doing horrible things, but he does love God and he's serving God's purposes. So people are really looking at Trump in that way. And that's why we see a lot of people of faith really will, um, uh, you know, hold on to to the Republican story, um, its platform because of their faith position. So maybe giving him a pass on some things because he holds true on other things that I they think value. that's what we're seeing happen. Yes. So what do you think? What do you make of that disconnect between black Christians and the Republican Party, which is predominant, although, as Leo pointed out, there are many people of faith who do support President Trump, at least in his policies. But let's face it, uh, as a voting bloc, not necessarily among black Americans. Correct. I believe um, the black church pastors represents their constituents. It represents um, those, their, the members of the church. So if they tend to be um, more um, liberal in their voting, a pastor may be more liberal 
and the way he speaks about um, certain social social issues. Yeah, social issues seem Correct. to be the crux. Right. Here. You do not hear, at least I don't, um, much talk about abortion in black churches. You hear it often in non-black churches or mixed churches. So I think that that makes a difference. I think if a if a black pastor started talking more conservative and supporting Donald Trump, I think it would cause division in the church. When you founded Black Conservatives for Truth, this was during the 2016 election, Mm -hmm. group based in Georgia, about 9,000 members from around the country. So for you, what were some of the issues you as a group thought, or you in founding the group thought most needed to be represented? Well, I created the group because uh, Black Republicans, conservatives, we are a minority. And I wanted to have a place for them to talk, for us to talk about issues important to us, to our community, uh, but put a Republican policy as an answer, because I do believe Republican policy is the best policy for black Americans. And are you looking mostly, uh, ask this question to both of you, domestic policy or foreign policy, does that figure into your thinking, or are you focused on domestic policy? I think that post-Reconstruction, the repair of the the, the black person who had previously been broken down in the slave and families broken apart, that project is unfinished. And so I think for most black conservatives, that one of the reasons why they maintain this almost uh, pro-American nationalism in the sense that us first, the um, the Americans first, and Georgians first, et cetera. This take care of the home first thing is important because black Americans still haven't been able to manage that American dream because, you know, in 1964, when I was born, my mother still couldn't vote. So there's still a lot of work to do at home so that we can continue to be that ship of freedom for the rest of the world. Well, I know that a lot of black Americans would also make the case that it was federal housing policy that kept that from happening or, you know, that a lot of people haven't had opportunity. So I'm wondering how you now think moving forward with a new administration, for example, or the current administration um, or Republican values pushes that agenda for black Americans. Well, I think that's the crux of it is the agenda. And Karen and I were talking before we came on air and we'll share a little now is that the, you know, what Karen is doing where she is helping to create awareness of black Republicans uh, and as well as uh, Republican policy in general. And that's where the birth of an agenda will happen. And and when we talk about things like federal housing policy, uh, we've had time now to evaluate some of those what was considered social safety net efforts or maybe just window dressing ideas about what we're doing to help people uplift themselves. And now with that history, we can go back and say that we need an agenda that is empowering, uplifting. And for black Republicans like myself and and Karen, I think I'm speaking for a little bit. I think we see that there's more opportunity to uplift like the prison reform policy. We just let ourselves out Um, like uh, Republicans fighting against search and seizure and no knock warrants, you know, reducing the size and interference of government is very important for freedom and liberation. And we are still fighting for that freedom and liberation. We just think the better platform to fight for it is on the Republican side of the House because Democrats have long been proposing these programs that they said was going to help. And we're seeing through history that black Americans really continue to lag. Leo Smith there, founder and president of Engage Futures Group and former member of the Georgia GOP Ruling State Committee. Karen Walker is with us also. She's founder of the Black Conserv- of Black Conservatives for Truth Group. Now we're talking and getting a sense of what motivates them as black voters and supporters of President Trump ahead of the president's visit to Georgia this week. 
Well, I'm just wondering for you, this is something that I read from people who were at the Turning Point or the Black Leadership Summit in this fall. As uh, people who people of color who aren't necessarily from communities that support their politics, how, how did your community respond to your conservative ideas and agenda? What has that been like for you as a person uh, on the personal level? Um, it's been varied. Um, friends, they, they, uh, they pretty much accept me. Some, I have lost some friends. Um, but it doesn't matter. I, I look at the values, my life, um, and not just my life. I look at others. Um, I think for, for many black people, maybe if they're, you're Democrats, they care more about feelings, more about how they are treated, how they are received. Republicans tend to care more about facts. It doesn't mean that we are not caring. It's just that we put our emphasis on something different. So I am more, I care more about unemployment, the unemployment rate, low unemployment, 5.4% unemployment for black Americans. I care more that um, all Americans are seeing about a thousand dollars a year more added to, to their income. I care more about uh, health care, health care choices. I care um, more about school choice. I want my child to go to the school that I believe is the best fit um, for him or, or her to succeed. Um, so I believe in less government. Um, others tend to believe in more gov- government intervention. I think that is a problem, too much government. That's what we're hearing. And in, I just wondered if you had anything to add to that, Leo. What has the response been like inside of your community? Well, I also worked um, as a one of the first political strategists working for the RNC on um, voter engagement issues targeting minority communities and work with Georgia GOP as an executive. And and certainly I think that the, the response of the media and uh, those people who aren't used to seeing us in those roles uh, was uh, more, more – um, unique than my general family. My family has known me for my, all my life. They've known me to be a conservative all my life. So none of them or the people working at Virginia Tech are not surprised that this is my role now because the way that I've led the NAACP, the way I've done things has always been from a conservative policy perspective and a faith-based perspective. So they're not surprised at all that I am a Republican. As a matter of fact, they used to sometimes even said I was a conservative Jew. So, so, so I've gotten it all um, because of the unique way that we've led change in the transformative organizations I've been involved with. So, But what Karen is describing is very typical. And, and I mean, I've even had people who, when they arrived at the Georgia GOP executive office looking to see a white male come to the door as the executive, they turned their cameras off because it wasn't the narrative that they wanted to present. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, this is something that conservative movement is not just for old white men, is the thing that I'm hearing from a lot of uh, black conservatives. And you, and you, by the way, have been called by the AJC, the Minority Engagement Guru, and were instrumental in recruitment for the GOP during the 2016 presidential election, helped to rally voters for then-candidate Trump's visit. So what, what was that like, though? Rallying crowds that overwhelmingly did not look like you. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's um, I'm first and foremost um, I'm, I'm identified by, by my faith, and then as an American. And so to do that is to do good for America, to rally people, to support the candidate that I thought would be best for America at the time. Um, I didn't, I, I transcended, my, my idea transcends the idea of uh, racial identity and, and what is good for America, because I think we're a great country that is good for the world and I want to support it so we continue to do that work. So it was very empowering and very um, um, 
I was I was very humbled to have that opportunity to rally people around this idea of America needing to get the support and the disruption that Donald Trump brought to the scene. You know, but a, a group of people from C.J. Pearson out of Columbus, a lot of I think he's been on one of these shows before, um, to Jessica Hayes working with Joda Heiss, with Mark Smith, who's working with Senator Perdue. All these people were people were either mentees of mine or became ambassadors for engagement for the Georgia GOP and the RNC uh, during 2013, 2014 leading up. And, you know, we tripled the black vote for Governor Deal, 47% of the Hispanic vote for Purdue. It's because of the work of these people doing things like the Oplo Awards, the Hispanic Leadership Awards. People coming and doing that work, being in the community, made a difference. And these people have gone on to, to really have an impact both in the professional realm and the grassroots realm of republicanism. We're going to run up against a break, but exit poll data shows that Trump did receive more votes from black voters than John McCain and Mitt Romney. What do you think contributed to his edge over those candidates? Karen, I'll ask you first. I believe they feel that Donald Trump is a fighter. Um, that's a very that's very important. Um, I think that he speaks upon uh, speaks on issues that are important to us. Um, he speaks about legal immigration. So when you speak when you talk about Black Americans. We tend to lag behind every segment um, that you can think of, whether it's unemployment, whether it's wages, whether it's education, whether it's whatever that you can think of. That's what it is. Those are the things that Donald Trump spoke about. So when he said, um, give me a chance, what do you have to lose? Well, look at where we where we were before 2016. We were not doing as well. We were doing better. I'm not I'm not trying to take away, but I, I think he has um, done what he said he would do. Uh, Virginia, if I, if I may, I mean, I think what Karen is saying is really things. important. One of the things that we've done with EFG strategies is focus groups, and we've seen that people are asking, well, look, Donald Trump really has done more for us on issues that impact us, and so when we see, like, Hispanic Americans also protesting with Black Americans on things, then that would change the game. All right, we're going to just put a pin in that. I'd love to come back to it. Karen Walker, Leo Smith with us. We're going to take a quick break and be back with more of On Second Thoughts. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. With me, Leo Smith, founder and president of Engage Futures Group and former member of the GOP, uh, Georgia GOP ruling state committee. Karen Walker is with us. She's founder of Black Conservatives for Truth. We're talking about, you know, the fact that there are about 8% of black voters identify as conservatives. And we're trying to get a sense of what motivates them and, and as voters and supporters of President Trump ahead of president's, the president's visit to Georgia this week. Leo, we just left off at the break and you were talking. Actually, I'm sorry, Karen, I think it was you who talked first about immigration. Um, and then, uh, so, you know, th- this is the language that the left and centrist voters often say of President Trump is racist, even mentioning that, what have you got to lose? You know, saying that black people live in ghettos, you know, that was one of the things that was singled out. Um, you know, there are good people on both sides after Charlottesville, uh, support for white nationalists, or at least refusing to shut them down, you know, judge bias because he's Mexican. So these are the things that people say, this this is a racist president. So I'm wondering for you, as black conservatives, how you interpret that and how you answered those specific charges. Well, Karen actually brought up one of the challenges of um, the left-right brain of um, liberals and conservatives and conservatives being more more interested in just the black and white fact of something. And so, so, and that's a challenge in judging Donald Trump. So for most black Americans who are raised and born in America, um, they know that it's not unusual to have a white president who might have racist rhetoric. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, that's Linda, not new. Right. It's not new. So we're not as, you know, our, our heads didn't explode when we heard something that sounded insensitive. And then to talk about the, the demographic facts um, of, of or, or the, you know, the economic um, conditions of black American life um, as a whole, not all, but to, to say that we've been at the bottom and that we um, have had uh, unemployment problems and things like that of crime in our neighborhood. Those things are true. And, and, and we need to not all neighborhoods, but in many neighborhoods. Otherwise, why, why is this Black um, Lives Matter movement happening unless there's a problem? Why do we concern ourselves with black education achievement unless there's a problem? Why do we concern ourselves with health care issues unless there's a problem? So these are real things we need to face up to deal with. And we need uh, the academic and the Ivy Tower to start addressing these problems in a real way. And you can't address them unless you call them up. Okay, so I do want to say before we get our tweets coming in, I do believe that people on the left would say they are also concerned with facts, just for the record. But um, I want to ask about, you know, the, the White House campaign, White House officials are saying that Trump's campaign picked Atlanta for his role because of its role as an epicenter of black life and the region's fast growing African American population. Critics say he and the Republican Party aren't connecting with the black population on Prominent issues, police brutality, criminal justice, housing issues. So what would you say to President Trump for his agenda going forward to connect with black voters? Well, I think that uh, we should be more willing to reach out, even when we don't necessarily agree. I think there's accountability on both sides, because if a black person is saying, I am not going to listen to a Republican because you're Republican, no matter what, the um there's not much reason for a Republican to reach out. But on the, the, the opposite side, um, Republicans need to be willing to listen to black voters. We need to not tell them what is wrong with them or how to fix their problem. We need to first find out, find out, find out what their issue is, what their desires are, and then we can apply Republican policy. Well, we have, um, Leo, just to know if you wanted to pick up on that, how would you advise the president and his team to connect with black voters in a way that feels authentic? And this is true for all politicians. If you are perceived as racist or insensitive about race, no one will listen to the rest of what you do. You can offer them a million dollars in goods and because you're racist, they will not take them. So it is very important for all political candidates to make every voting block matter in their campaigns. And that's what Karen is saying. Okay, so how about two other voters who are, you know, if you had a one sentence statement, one sort of message that you would like to communicate to other African American voters who are solidly Democrat, what would you say? Make sure you're voting an agenda and make sure that agenda is is related to making sure that your, your economic unit, your educational opportunity is first and foremost. And if you can see that agenda in somebody's campaign platform, take a look. How about for you, Karen? Make sure you're voting to empower your family, to empower your community, even if it's from an unlikely candidate. Just be open. Be open to listen and receive. Karen Walker, founder of Black Conservatives for Truth, and Leo Smith, founder and president of Engage Futures Group and former member of the Georgia GOP Ruling State Committee. Thank you so both so much for your time today. Thank you, Virginia.
The capsized cargo ship, the Golden Ray, is still trapped in St. Simon Sound. The process of removing the ship is so complex it could take months or even a year. The wreckage has dealt a blow to the local economy, and oil leaking from the vessel vessel puts the Sound's delicate marsh ecosystem at risk. While scientists are working to trace the leak and limit its impact, GBB's Emily Joan reports on potential disagreement about how far that oil is spread. It's before dawn at the Champney River boat ramp, about half an hour north of where the Golden Ray sits looming over the St. Simons Pier. By the beam of his cell phone's flashlight, Fletcher Sams with Altamaha Riverkeeper can see a sheen on the water. It's hard to see, but you see, like, I'm not talking about the brown color, I'm talking about the film on the top, but you see how quickly it comes back? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sams uses a stick to break up the oily film on the top of the water. It reforms the second he pulls out the stick, a sign that it's oil and not something natural. Poking it with a stick is the scientific method just to see. Of course, the actual scientific method is a lot more sophisticated. A researcher from UGA pulls on waders and strides into the dark water to collect a sample. Others from all over the region came from places with oil in the water, on the ground, and coating marsh grass. The samples are headed back to Athens for testing in the lab. Every hydrocarbon is is distinct and it has a, a fingerprint. That's oceanographer and UGA professor Samantha Joy. She was one of the lead researchers on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. She's recognized as an international expert. We extract the hydrocarbons out of those samples and then we run them on um, this really fancy instrument and we can determine what's in there. They can not only tell what kind of oil it is, they can specifically match it to other samples. Joy isn't the only one doing this kind of fingerprinting. Doug Haymans is with the State Department of Natural Resources. He's part of Unified Command, the joint response effort of the state, the Coast Guard, and the responsible party, Gallagher Marine. He wants to make sure the oil they find definitely came from the ship. There are things that have been picked up in those water quality samples that we have seen in this estuary prior to this incident. Um, And so, you know, that's where the real work is going to be is determining whether or not anything that we're seeing is because of the incident. The only way for either Joy or Haymans to be sure where the oil came from is to compare it to a sample from the ship. Unified Command has that sample. Joy does not. Haymans says releasing the sample will be handled on a case-by-case basis based on request. Joy has requested it. What troubles Joy is that while she is willing to share what she's learning about the oil spread, Unified Command has so far not shared with her as much as she'd like. She says that could put Georgia communities on the back foot. Imagine a year, a year and a half from now, when there's litigation and a settlement, what ecosystems along coastal Georgia were damaged from this spill? We have to be able to answer that question in a robust way that protects the people and ecosystems of the state of Georgia. Heyman says Unified Command is collecting samples weekly from 22 sites in the surrounding waterways and coastlines. Joy, on the other hand, is going wherever there's oil and water. If she could compare her samples to the fuel and oil from the Golden Ray, it might paint a more far-reaching picture of the spill. Doug Heyman's again. So we hope that when this is all over, the work that the University of Georgia is doing um, and the work that Unified Command is doing will help tell a complete story. But Joy says when this is all over isn't soon enough when there's oil spreading through the marshes of Glynn County and maybe beyond right now. That is GPB's Emily Jones. She's also on the line with us from our Savannah Bureau. Doug Haymans is with us. He's on the line from Brunswick State. 
he's the state's on-scene coordinator for the Golden Ray response, so part of that unified command that we just heard about. He's with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources and Rod Sullivan, a maritime lawyer, lawyer who's represented both plaintiffs and defendants in cases of ships that have suffered accidents. On the line from Jacksonville, Florida, thank you all so much for being with us. But I'm going to start with Doug because we just heard the state 22 test sites to figure out how far this oil has gone. Professor Joyce says it's reached beyond those sites. How would you respond? Well, first of all, I think you uh, you ought to at least update Emily's story. Uh, that, that was put together a couple of weeks ago. We have been 35 days without a release of oil from the overturned uh, car carrier. Uh, we Again, we've seen nothing coming from that ship in over 35 days, and that's a very positive thing. Uh, to the water quality samples, again, 22 samples weekly, and we haven't seen anything that causes us concern from those samples throughout the estuary or from the areas just outside of, of uh, St. Simon Sound. Okay, just to update, that story was actually filed last week. But, Rod, I want to ask, Joy, Joy said it's important to track all the oil that's leaked from the Golden Ray for litigation purposes. You're a maritime lawyer. Do you think she's right? What, what purpose would that serve? No, no, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think it's right because I really think the story is here is how little oil has escaped from this vessel. I mean, you have an overturned vessel with 450,000 gallons of fuel oil loaded with lube oil and 4,400 cars with gasoline and motor oil in them. And the average from the ship is really fairly insignificant. I mean, I've been up there on the marshes. You have to search hard to try to find traces of oil. And the thing about oil and gasoline is that when it hits the water, it spreads out into a slick that's micron thick. So you don't, this is not a deep water horizon. This is not an Exxon Valdez. This is a situation where there has been a relatively small amount of oil dropped on St. Simon's Sound that has spread out. I'm not really sure what the environmental effects of that is, but we, we shouldn't be treating this the same way we treated, for instance, the Deepwater Horizon spill, which was a significant amount of oil over a long period of time. Doug, I want to ask you, beyond tracking the oil, the immediate need is to contain it. And we know there are plans to remove the ship, but they're not yet finalized, so you can't talk about that. But how about this strategy to keep oil and debris from a wreckage, from this wreckage in one place? Well, again, uh, you're Rod just said it. Now, this has been very little leakage from this ship. It was uh, what we called burps from the vent stacks in the first few weeks. Those vent stacks have been capped, and those tanks have been drained. There's been 302,000 gallons thus far that have been lightered from the ship. There are skimmers on scene. There's hard boom on scene, absorbent uh, boom on scene, and crews are uh, surrounding the ship all, at all points of, the, of daylight hours in case anything else is is spilled. Uh, but uh, for the last month, they've had little to do on the water actually tracking oil. Well, this ship is the size of a 70-story building carrying about 4,000 Hyundai and Kia cars, so huge and weighs thousands of tons. Now, we know you can't tell us unified command plans for getting it out of the water, but best guess, what do you think officials will do? Well, so there's, there's been a, they've already announced, of course, that the boat cannot be righted safely. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it is, uh, I'll say, distorting. It's under its own weight, and so it won't ever sail again. And so the salvagers have told us this has become a, a, a wreck that they're going to have to dismantle in place. 
Um, the salvage company that is on scene has done this around the world. They are, you know, global experts in this field. The, uh, the insurers have given them a certain amount of time to come forward with their plan. And that time, uh, is, that, is actually up this week. So we hope by week's end that we will have a better idea of how they will be dismantling the ship. You know, from a Department of Natural Resources standpoint and from the United States Coast Guard, you know, we want it to be as environmentally sound, environmentally friendly as it possibly can be, realize that they're going to have to cut this ship into pieces where it sits. I'm wondering, Emily, if you have any thoughts on what you've heard so far. Uh, you've done a lot of reporting on the ground, but wondering if you have any thoughts on either what people are saying about how it should be done or what the economic toll might be. I'm sorry, environmental toll. <laughs> um, the, the main concern that I've that I've heard from from folks on the ground, or or you know, better to say, perhaps folks on the water, uh, is that um, they they are seeing a bit of an economic toll. It's difficult to say what that toll is yet at this point. But you know, I spoke to to people who like run fishing charters, for instance, and they've had people cancel their charter trips, and they're you know sort of having to take people farther afield to make sure that they are not fishing in areas where um, there is oil or what looks like it might be oil in the water, and so that you know that cuts into their profit margin. So they they are are really concerned about that. Um, and they also just have a lot of questions about, you know, how long this is going to take and, and whether there are going to be long-term impacts on their businesses as well. Rod, how about for you? How about the shipping companies that are using the port? What might this be costing them? And who is actually paying for the cleanup? Well, first of all, let's talk about the economic impact. If this salvage costs, let's say, $200 million or up to a half a billion dollars, somewhere between 70 to 75% of that money is going to be spent in the local economy. Right now, there are 400 people on site working in and around St. Simon's Island that wouldn't be there otherwise. That contributes to the economy. There are 80 vessels there. So a lot of this is going to be recouped by the local, by local businesses, whether it be hotels, vessel operators, and the like. There's going to be a, a, a positive financial impact as a result of this. Now, so this you're process, proposing this as a sort of net gain? Well, I don't know about I'd go that far, but I think that when you when you're talking about fishermen losing charters for for, you know, what they might get 500 to 1000 dollars a day compared to this company coming in and spending a million dollars a day, um I think that the more significant impact is the impact of, of Schmidt and the other salvors being in the Brunswick area. All right, just let me warn you, we've got about 20 seconds left, Rod. Well, the other thing is this is going to take a year or more. So people have to get used to the idea that this vessel is going to be in place. The idea, the, the cutting it up and taking it away is a process that's going to take a long period of time. And so they're going to get a, long, a chance to see this highly technical operation going on for for many, many months, if not more than a year. Well, obviously, a continuing story. I want to thank Rod Sullivan, Emily Jones, and also we want to thank Doug for joining us from the Unified Command. That is Doug Haymans. We'll be back with more of On Second Thought in just a minute. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. When Lorenzo Lowe Jelks joined WSB-TV as a reporter 52 years ago, Viewers didn't actually see him. Meanwhile, the workers are standing pat. They seem to be saying, No union, no way. For Megan, this is Mojo, WSB News. 
Jelk's voice was there, along with his name on the screen, but no face, no gold dome, nor street scene in the background. It took a concerted and organized effort to get African-American journalists in front of the camera on Atlanta Television News. After Jelks came Jocelyn Dorsey, who became the first black daytime news anchor. Monica Kaufman Pearson arrived at WSB three years later, the first woman and first black evening news anchor. Those trailblazing journalists are among the subjects of the documentary Black and Reporting, The Struggle Behind the Lens. Also featured former WSB reporter Walt Elder, a pioneer in morning headline news. The fact remains that housing discrimination is still prevalent. The question now being asked by those who are mostly discriminated against is, whose responsibility is it to solve this problem? It's generally been left up to the federal government. City, county, and 69. I spoke with Walt Elder when the documentary debuted, along with Tamara Wilson, who wrote, directed, and produced it. Among those featured in the film, late civil rights activist Lonnie King, who appealed to the FCC to withhold broadcasting licenses of Atlanta stations until they opened the door to black talent. After meeting with agency heads in Washington, King met with representatives of Atlanta's major news outlets in January of 1970 and made his case. In Atlanta, there is no excuse, in my opinion, for not finding qualifiable blacks, whether they're on the air or whether they're behind the camera. I don't think we have to have a genius to run that camera over there. And I'm sure that we've got a lot of English majors in this city who've graduated from these six colleges who can, be, who can be just as good as Aubrey Morris over here or some of the other guys, but they need the opportunity. And the only way that we I asked Tamara Wilson about the impact of King's argument. Lonnie Key managed to put together a group of people to lead the task. And so he was able to help others, you know, like the Jocelyn Dorsleys, the Monica Pearsons, to get into the business and also behind the scenes. I'm, I'm behind the scenes, so people don't know how much power a producer has in bringing different types of stories to the stations and the way that those stories are reported. He was speaking to the media elite, and he said that there was definitely some resistance. People stood up and said, who are you to tell us what to do? But some, like Don Elliott Heald, let him use the conference room for the meeting. Was this a market decision? Had the time come? You know, if it wasn't for him, I mean, he he was in charge and he he was the one to allow people to come in. He knew it was time. Why not start here in Atlanta? Well, Walt, I'm wondering for you, when you saw people on the street who saw you on television, what was what was the response of people who finally saw a face that looked like them on TV? Oh, they were very, very happy. Even white people. It was a novelty as well as it being a historic change uh, that was taking place uh, in Atlanta. Don Elliott Hill was a visionary. I went from a street reporter to the public affairs director at Channel 2. It was all because of him. All along the way, anytime I had an idea about something, he signed it. What did you know about WSB-TV when that general manager offered you a job? I knew that it was the number one station in Atlanta and in the Southeast. Lorenzo Jelts was my hero. Mm. He's good, and it was an honor to work with him. You're deeply moved when you're talking about this. We see that in the documentary. What is it, what's it, what is it that's getting stirred in you? It was a different time. Yeah. It was some serious problems back then. And to overcome those problems, 
took a lot of merit. I thought a journalist has a serious commitment to the community he serves because you have to tell that story. Mm. I'm speaking with Walt Elder, former WSB-TV reporter, the first African-American on Atlanta Morning Headline News. He and his trailblazing colleagues are subjects of a new documentary. It's called Black and Reporting, The Struggle Behind the Lens. And filmmaker, writer, producer, director, uh, Tamara Wilson is also with us in the studio. Well, let's hear a little bit. This is Monica Pearson, now co-host of GPB's A Seat at the Table, reflecting on her experiences as a black woman anchor at WSB. I had black people complaining because I wasn't black enough, meaning they wanted me with my afro out to here, big earrings here, and fist in the air. And then there were those who were not happy because I was not known here. Who was this woman? And then you had white people who just felt it was the spot for white men and no woman should be on the air in the six o'clock news, whether she's black or white. And then there were those people who said, I do not want a black woman at all. For you, Tamara, this is, you know, the not enoughness, you know, I'm not black enough, I'm not white enough. It feels like that's something I heard over and over again from people. Is it me? Is it my race? Is it me as a person? Is it my work? What, what do you think's going on there? It was very important for me to put that statement in from Monica, from her interview, because it is an ongoing thing for many people who are not white to be true, but also to report the news or to deliver these stories the way they're supposed to be. And that's all we're trying to do. But you get criticized on both sides, and sometimes it can be a little difficult, but just listening to their stories and how they just rose above it mm -hmm. and kept going. And like I said, that there are the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing. People, especially young people, can learn that these are the things that have happened. There may be similar things that are happening today, but in a different way. But, you know, there's ways you can handle it. There's ways you can rise above it. There's ways that you can address it, if you will, to the people that are actually doing it to you. Well, what role was having African-Americans in the media playing that white-only media did not? One, a lot of our stories weren't being told. And if they were told, they were told in a not-so-glamorous way, or they only told the negative things. But when you're only telling the bad things in one community, people see to see them that way, that they're savages or they're killers or they're murderers or they have this disease or what have you. So when you bring in other people um, of different races to tell these various stories, you get a different take on it and you will find some positive things. Hmm. I've been wondering for you, Walt, looking back at yourself then, do you feel like, ah, I, you know, I should have been more radical, I should have pushed harder or, or do you, you know, do you feel at peace with that? There are ways you can be radical, but if you want a job and you want to use that Platform. outlet, I used to do a lot of stories that never would have been done if I didn't do the story. There are different ways to be radical, but you can't be radical and make your and let your enemies win. So you were stealthily getting your message across. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That was a strategy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Without a doubt. For instance, now, a lot of people may not like what I'm saying, but the first real anchors, so to speak, were black women. And I think, well, I know that that was a strategic move 
on the part of the powers that be because they knew that they would be more acceptable, even though what Monica said was quite true, mm -hmm. you know, at the same time. But they were less threatening, is that what you mean? Yes, without a doubt. If you look at uh, the news now, you don't have many black, uh, black male anchors. Like making a television report, you're creating a narrative arc, right? You're, you've got a beginning, middle, and an end. Exactly. And there is, there's a, you know, your third act, if you will, is this dramatic kind of retelling of things that have happened to reporters while in the field. There is um, a, just a chilling account by Jocelyn Dorsey. She had to cover a campaign event for J.B. Stoner. This was a white supremacist, later convicted of bombing a church, by the way, who ran for governor of Georgia in 1970. Let's hear a little bit of that story. It was on the weekend, and there weren't any other reporters but me. And the assignment editor said, I hate to tell you this, but J.B. Stoner is announcing for governor and we need to have you cover his announcement. It's an FCC requirement. I mean, they went through all this explanation. And I'm like, why are you going through all this explanation? Marietta is much more centrally located than Savannah. I don't uh, care to live in the city of Atlanta because the blacks have taken it over and it's no longer safe for anybody to live in Atlanta. The blacks don't I had no idea what I was walking into. There were banners all over the wall that said, kill the N word, and I was the only black person in there. And as soon as I walked in, the crowd just started roaring, you know, get her out of here, and shouting obscenities. I was scared. I remember a woman saying, you know, you need to get her out of here. We're gonna get sickle cell anemia. And I started laughing because I couldn't believe the ignorance, and that was the wrong thing to do. Walt, did you ever feel threatened when you were covering stories? White people were not used to seeing, quote-unquote, intelligent black people. You know, you'd say, hello, Megan, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Well, who the hell do you think you are, In you know? <laughs> See, I'm a reporter with Channel 2, and I'm trying to give you an opportunity to present your wonderful story. Huh? <laughs> you know, so you had to play them. In some places that you went into, you could tell as you was driving up, you needed to turn around. What, like outside of Atlanta or in the city? Mostly outside of Atlanta, but believe me, Atlanta was just as racist in its own way. You know, um, and you could tell when you're talking to somebody how all of a sudden their eyes get big, they start getting red. <laughs> You say to yourself, this person is transforming into something that he may not be able to control himself. So when I'd go into a story, I tell the cameraman, turn the camera on. Keep it on all the time. Because the thing was, is I wanted to be, if you couldn't see it, I want you to hear it. What we were being, what we were up against sometimes. And those things would be put in stories and sometimes people wouldn't believe it. Is that tomorrow something that you saw over and over again? Yeah, it just it just cut deep. Cause I don't know. I was I was telling them earlier. I'm like, you guys were built differently. I would have ran out there so quick. I just couldn't imagine being put in that situation. They, you tough. all she were. Was, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you all were. Can you can you own that, Walt? Right. Well, we had a job to do. Somebody had to do it. Are you just being humble, or is this too too hard to touch? Well, some of it is, but uh, 
Uh, I think I just, thought it was a great opportunity. Just having you out in the field is vulnerable. Right. Um, just like Emmanuel um, said, Hall said, it's like you never know when a brick's going to be flying your way, just for no reason. You had nothing to do with the story, just mean people out there. So for me, Mr. Elder, I what? bow down. I bow down to you. I mean, it's all kinds of things. You know, I come from a different time, you know. So uh, I was shot at two times growing up in Atlanta. And I never thought I would end up living here. But I traveled around the country, around the world, and I decided to come back home, and things were changing. It, Atlanta was very cliquish. I mean, seriously cliquish, you know. If you didn't come from a certain background and things that I thought held Atlanta back, still do, you know. But for the most part, uh, Atlanta was a unique uh, southern city. So what does it mean for you to share these kind of stories to the audience today? I think people need to know where things come from. They need to have a relationship to the people that did it, if they can, if they have that opportunity. And I think what tomorrow and the uh, Atlanta Associate of Black Journalists has done is say, if you don't know how this started, go to a black school somewhere, watch this documentary, listen to these people. This will give you some sort of, of feeling for it. The thing that gets me about Low Jelks, I always loved his delivery. And his voice. Tell me, can you do a low jokes imitation? No. <laughs> no. It's so smooth, mm. <laughs> you know, to work with him. Hey, he taught me a lot when I went, because, you know, um, a lot of stuff you had to learn on your own. Tomorrow, however, you are now a production manager and producer at CNN. Mm -hmm. Now, CNN has come under some criticism for not having people on air who reflect its viewership uh, as well as they should. So why is it important now that people of color, producers, anchors, writers, why then, why now? Why not? We're here. We know what we're doing. We know how to tell the stories fairly. Society should want to see different people on air. Um, and it's not just the organization itself, but it's the people who are watching it. And, and like I said, the power of producer, we help bring stories to our viewers. And a producer is in charge. Yeah. It's <laughs> not all about who's on the air. It's really more about who's behind the scenes. I write the scripts for the part, the talent that I'm working for. I'm setting up the shoots and everything, and I know what kind of tone I want to set. But you don't want to make anyone upset. And it was very important for me to carefully tell their stories. But the things that happened, happened. The way you felt, that's how you felt. A lot of our history is, is getting lost or just not being taught. This was an opportunity for me to share some of the struggles that have happened. There are different ones today, but we can overcome so to speak. I know that's cliche, but... How about shall? Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was my earlier conversation with Walt Elder, former WSB-TV reporter, and with Tamara Wilson, writer, director, and producer of Black and Reporting, The Struggle Behind the Lens. There's a link to watch Black and Reporting at gpbnews.org. Thank you.
On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Mary Lynn Ryan is executive producer. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us here at GPB. GPB.